Today on Inside the Box. Well, there's different kinds of wars. There's wars that don't end just because a white flag goes up. Somebody signs a piece of paper. There's wars that go on inside. It's the Civil War and 1960s scripted television. This is the very coat worn by your great-grandfather, Josiah Mitchell, the one on the Confederate side. He fought under General Robert E. Lee, a very famous general. We will examine the ways in which writers portrayed the Confederacy and the problematic nature of promoting the myth of the lost cause. He tried to give me a $50 Confederate bill. Well, you should have taken it. It's worth $400. But they lost. <laughs> that apparently is just a rumor. Join us as we try to figure out the motivations for telling these stories and their possible impact on audiences. That's next on Inside the Box. John, I loved your father like my own brother. But I'm not anxious to join him. I'm sorry if that sounds cruel or cowardly. But the things you wrote, that's mostly what set me off to reading and wondering. Stay ignorant, John. Ignorance is the greatest comforter of all. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Box. I'm Steve Voorhees, and today my co-host, Jonathan Bullinger. How are you doing today? Good. Good to see you, Steve. Excellent. Today is really an episode that I have been, it's been on my list of things to do for a while, probably about three years I've had this written down, and it was something that I noticed simply from watching TV, watching reruns, and you see one episode, you'd say, well, that was interesting. And then you see two or three about this topic, and you say, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then you begin to research it, and you find that there's a lot of stuff going on. And so I'm really interested to kind of pick your brain today, Jonathan, and, and see your thoughts on this, because this is coming from my observations and then doing the research and seeing if, if um, you know, if I'm making a, a mountain out of a molehill or if, if this was something that we have to think about in the contemporary time that it was made. Uh, but what I want to discuss is in the 1960s, a hundred years after the Civil War, we find that the Civil War has become topics for television. And I'm not talking about documentaries or news. I'm talking about dramas and sitcoms, particularly Westerns, uh, which were a big genre at the time. And when you dive into writing for Civil War characters, we're not just seeing Union uh, soldiers, we're seeing Confederate characters, uh, characters who used to serve in the Confederacy but now have a place in America. And so many of the shows that we're going to talk about today, you know, look at life after the Civil War. And to me, this is a very complex issue to look at these characters in a time period when Characters are very monolithic. Uh, you're not seeing complex characteristics. It's usually the good guy and the bad guy. But what happens when the good guy is an ex-Confederate soldier? And, and this is something that, uh, as a child, I didn't really pick up on. And I watched some of these shows in my youth. And as I got to be an adult and became more aware, you start to ponder these things as you're watching what would otherwise be mindless television or the vast wasteland that Newton Minow talked about. So the inciting incident for this is actually a Dennis the Menace episode. So Dennis the Menace, 1959 to 1963, a very innocuous program for the most part, aired on CBS Sunday nights, aired in reruns in the 1980s on Nickelodeon. So I watched this show uh, as a child and I've seen it in reruns since. Uh, I, I respect that, that the sitcom, I find most of the episodes are pretty well written, uh, but very simplistic, and it's mostly about a child. In a particular episode, Dennis's grandmother gives him a Civil War jacket and hat uh, from his great-great-grandfather, and it's Henry Mitchell, his father's great-grandparent. But the jacket is a Confederate jacket. And Henry Mitchell pokes some jokes about his great-grandfather's 
gambling problem. But the grandmother, Henry Mitchell's mother and Dennis's grandmother says, This is the very coat worn by your great-grandfather, Josiah Mitchell, the one on the Confederate side. <laughs> it looks like he fought the whole war by himself. Is that camphor? Oh, Henry, you should be proud to own something that belonged to a hero like your great-grandfather. A hero? <laughs> Dad always said that great-grandpa Mitchell was caught playing poker on guard duty by General Lee himself. And all off to the who's got. <laughs> Merely gossip. Well, suddenly, this is quite problematic because now the Mitchell family is directly tied to the Confederacy. Isn't that beautiful? There, you see. Dennis, this coat was worn by your great-great-grandfather, Corporal Josiah Mitchell, in the Civil War. He fought under General Robert E. Lee, a very famous general. You mean my great-great-grandpa was friends with a real general? Mm -hmm. Well, sure, they even exchanged cards. <laughs> Grandma, could I have this coat for my very own? Dennis, for Pete's sake, what'll you do with that old coat? I want to wear it. It belonged to a real hero, my own great-great-grandpa who fought in the Serial War. <laughs> well, I'm glad somebody around here has family pride. You know, having pride for the Confederacy, it, it, it problematizes what would otherwise be an innocuous story. And Dennis wears the jacket and it gets into Confederate money, which he finds in the jacket. And the Confederate money is very valuable, uh, worth hundreds of dollars. And it exchanges hands in the episode. And Henry Mitchell, the only kind of underlying humor and fun he pokes at his great-grandfather is about his gambling. And in fact, they find aces of spades, multiple aces of spades, also hidden in the jacket. So you know he's probably a cheater. Does that do enough, Jonathan, to, you know, show the Confederacy in a negative light? Or otherwise, this show, it's more about the pride for the Confederacy, which I just find to be really interesting. We'll get into the writer of the episode, but this was the episode that kind of got me to think, what other shows were doing this? Is, is, that a, is that a weird take for you, a strange kind of take for a sitcom in the 1960s? Well, I mean, let's, let's look at the different elements that you've introduced. So first off, and we've talked about this on other episodes, you know, how should I say it? Like, I'm, I'm always intrigued by the fact that you and I and many other people grew up on reruns reruns of a culture of a time that are you know 20 years prior so that is always a thread throughout our work so that's the first level which is the fact that you as probably in the 90s were looking at something from the late 50s early 60s and were were you know intrigued by it that that's interesting out of itself then you have this other layer of the idea of that time period which is you're asking is it weird that this sort of dopey kid show is writing this this topic of of, uh, of confederacy. So the first layer, and I'm not gonna I, I'm not gonna re reveal all the dominoes right now because I know a little bit about what you want to talk about, and I think it'll be interesting as we we go through it. So I'll just kind of go slow here. So the other level is it's 1950s. It's the boomer generation. They are the generation of television, right? They're growing up on it, and we know, and most of our listeners probably know, although if you're younger, you might not is that the bigger hits for kids were uh, uh, Superman, uh, uh, Davy Crockett, and The Lone Ranger. And as you mentioned, Westerns are also very popular, popular in films, and they're popular in television as well. So there's this sort of romanticization of sort of vigilantes and frontier life. And so the idea of writing a script around, uh, 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 you said Dennis the Menace, you know, uh, about history, about gunplay, about war, about old money. That seems like very standard kind of kid stuff in that way. But uh, what you're getting at is sort of why are we suddenly thinking and writing potentially positively about the Confederacy in the late 50s and early 60s? So I'll put that off to the side for a second because I think we'll get into this down the road after you talk a little bit more. But I wish Andrew was here because I know he'd be sort of jumping at, he'd be in his head, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into this now, but he'd be saying, Southern strategy, Southern strategy, Southern strategy. So we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but I don't think it, it it's weird. But if you know the context, it's not too weird. I mean, it, it's it can be explained, I guess I should say. So I'll leave it at that. 
So I looked up the writer of the Dennis the Menace episode, Mort R. Lewis, and his obituary was published in the Los Angeles Times. And in addition to being a CPR expert, he was actually credited for teaching CPR to other uh, members of the Hollywood community. One of the last lines of the obituary is, he was recognized as an expert of the Civil War, and he died in 1991. So I was kind of curious, well, what else did he write? And what kind of expert was he? The, the obituary doesn't go into great detail about that. Now, he did write other episodes of sitcoms like Bewitched. He did write for Westerns such as Bonanza. But he also wrote for an episode of Rawhide uh, with Clint Eastwood. And Rawhide takes place right after the Civil War. In season 8, episode 11, Brush War at Buford, and Rowdy Yates, uh, the character that Clint Eastwood plays, uh, his family fought for the Confederacy, and they have to drive the cattle across a property that's owned by a Union, uh, a former Union soldier, Union household. And there's contempt for the Union in this episode, and again shows the Confederacy in a positive light. So we see some type of trend here that Mort Lewis is kind of going in this direction. Again, just two episodes, small sample. The Dennis the Menace one, uh, by the way, is season two, episode 24, Dennis and the Fishing Rod. That comes first in the early 60s. The Rawhide season eight, episode 11, uh, happens in the later 60s. But, but more R. Lewis, you know, writing with the Confederacy in mind in a sympathetic way, again, catches my attention. Uh, two other episodes I just want to briefly discuss, and then we'll and then we'll go into where I'm going with all this. The Twilight Zone. In, in my adult years, I have great respect for what Rod Serling did with this series. And in season three, there are two Civil War themed episodes. Uh, and this again is the early '60s. Twilight Zone was 1959 to 1964 on CBS. And in season three, episode four, The Passerby, we see uh, really. Uh, Serling's anti-war theme comes through. Uh, Serling had stated that his time in the military had made him uh, take a very anti-war perspective, and we see that in this episode. But in a way, it strips down uh, any meaning that the Civil War gave to both the Union and the Confederacy, and we see it down to the human level. And I think that's what Serling wanted, but it, again, shows Confederacy and Union in in a, in a softer light. And when you do that, it, it's quite interesting because of everything Confederacy stood for. In season three, episode 11, Still Valley, the whole episode is about Confederacy and the Confederate soldiers and how they have an opportunity to win the war doing the devil's work. And it's using witchcraft to win the war. Satan, I call upon you. And in so doing, I revoke the name of Joe, read it. It calls upon us to revoke the name of God. Leave it be, Dogger. You said yourself it's the only thing we got left. He's right, Paradine. God help us. That is all we have left. What do we call them? Damn Yankers, don't we, Lieutenant? That's the phrase, ain't it? Damn Yanks. If I read aloud from this book, it'll be the Confederacy that's damned. It's that book, it's the end. Then let it be the end. If it must come, let it come. If this cause is to be buried, let it be put in hallowed ground. One of the Confederate soldiers burns the witchcraft book, spoiler alert, at the end of the episode, and they decide we cannot completely denounce God. And so again, now the Confederacy has a morality to it, which I thought was interesting. And this episode is written by Serling along with Manly Wade Wellman. So just a couple of interesting things that I started. Uh, the, these three episodes, the Dennis the Menace and the two uh, Twilight Zones, got me thinking, well, what else is going on? And I'll later on in the episode, we'll get into Westerns that really get into that genre as I started doing more research out of the, outside of the normal reruns that, that I watch. Where all this leads to, though, is a myth, and it's called the myth of the lost cause. And this idea that Southerners wanted to change the memory of the Civil War for the purpose of replacing its history. And I know, Jonathan, 
uh, you're very big into collective memory. And so I'm, I'm hoping that this topic uh, is, is of interest to you. But the idea that Southerners wanted to position their war efforts in the best possible light. And when you think about it, the South was so decimated by the Civil War and records and accounts show that uh, Union's army just decimated them, uh, both from a human standpoint and also from a wealth standpoint. So that's got to be really hard when you're on the losing side to pick up and kind of collect yourself. And so the human nature tells me that you're going to somehow try to justify what you've done. And this is where the myth of the lost cause comes from because they needed to justify their actions. Uh, they did not want to be remembered, Southerners that is, as a group of people who attempted to overthrow the US government. And the way they did this uh, is that memoirs were written that were altering the truth, not really uh, talking about what happened, but rather writing memoirs that made the South look better. Veteran speeches uh, for commemorating statues were to only show Confederate soldiers as heroes and brave men. And artwork that, that was commissioned, um, you know, were all, was also to portray the war in a certain light from a Southerner's perspective. Now you have to understand that on the heels of the Civil War, Confederate leaders held high-ranking positions within Congress and government because they were not going to be prosecuted uh, for what they tried to do in terms of turning us into the Confederate States of America. So they returned to Congress and were allowed back into governing once the war was over. And that gave them a lot of agency for changing records or trying to rewrite this history in a more positive light. And again, that comes under the guise of, well, the war is over, let's all come together and sort of forget about this and we're gonna to work together now, which on the surface sounds like a very peaceful way to do things, but you're also kind of erasing the history that came before this and the whole reason for the war, which we're going to get to. Now, the modes of communication that they used um, to, spin, to spin this were mainly based in unfairness that they went into the war knowing the Union had a lot more resources, had a lot more power, and they basically said this was a lost cause from the beginning, that when the South entered the war, they were being bullied by the North, and they said, we don't have a chance in winning this, but we have to stand up for a bully. This is principled. And so this is where the lost cause myth comes from, because it's trying to make them like the good underdog, trying to fight the bad bully and, and to uh, stand up for themselves and everything that you think America stands for. And, they, and, and that's where this comes from when you read some of this stuff, um, because they wanted to provide future generations with this narrative. Now, how much of this narrative possibly could have seeped into television a hundred years later. And that's what I'm seeing in these episodes, Jonathan. So the lost cause hero that comes out in many of these episodes is Robert E. Lee. We hear a lot more about Robert E. Lee in these episodes than we do about Ulysses Grant, about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and although those names sometimes appear, it's Robert E. Lee that's the big hero and someone to look up to. Uh, in 1924, there was a statue dedicated to Robert E. Lee and they called him the undefeated spirit. You know, using Lee was really to refocus the battlefield narrative on the fight and the strength of courage uh, rather than on the mishaps of what happened on the battlefield. And also Jefferson Davis, who many Southerners recognized was a complete disaster that Robert E. Lee is many times seen above even Jefferson Davis. So in my research uh, of looking into the myth of the lost cause, and, and then thinking about the TV that we watched, here are five, five of the key tenets of the myth that came from the research. Number one, it's important to deny the importance of slavery triggering secession and war. Slavery was central to the Civil War, all right? So that, that's my position in this, uh, it, is, is that we see in the myth, it's to deny that importance. Number two, Blame the aggressive abolitionists for unfairly attacking the South. That's the bully approach. The Union is bullying us. They're coming after us. It's not deserved. We didn't do anything to trigger this. They're picking on us. That's number two. Number three, celebrate slaveholding society. Show us the benefits of what we're giving to the slaves is what the Southerners would say. Number four, 
portray the Confederates as strongly united in war. And finally, number five, attribute defeat to the sheer size of the North and its endless amount of resources. And again, that's the lost cause right there. We have no chance, but we're doing this for principle. We're doing this because we are courageous people. Uh, th those, are, those are the five tenets of the myth. When we look at some of these TV shows, Jonathan, do you see these permeating these scripts? And, or I should yeah. ask you, is it problematic? Yeah, no, this is, I'm really glad when you said you wanted to do this topic because it's an important one, an interesting one, and it's something that we need to sort of remind people about, particularly these days. So let me go through, a, let me respond to a couple different things that you're, you're laying out. So I'll start first with, with what I feel to be the, the true, true answer. And again, I'm, I'm not a Civil War scholar. That's not my bag, but I've grew up like a lot of us who sort of read a lot about it. I'm then very fortunate to be, uh, had access to a lot of education. So I've, you know, talked about this sort of thing and read about it and blah, blah, blah. But if you really want to be, I would say truthful, but albeit cynical, is the Civil War ultimately is both... Well, I should say this. It's it's actually never, and the history of this country has never been about, as far as caring, it's never been about uh, the African who then becomes the African-American, right? Now, I'm not saying there weren't folks at that time who fought hard to free people from bondage. There were. But it was part of our culture. It was normalized. So in hindsight, it's nice to say, like, the North wanted to free all the slaves and the South wanted to keep them. But really, it was just about resources and power and access and money and economy and all that with a smattering of people in there who were like, uh, this is wrong morally, right? We should free these people. So so the my point of saying that is, is we often do look at the idea that, you know, with the, this weird, unfortunate lost cause uh, ideology of, well, we would have eventually freed the slaves, right? We would have gotten around to it. No, you wouldn't have. It was baked into your culture. And on the other side, uh, much like the idea with World War II, like why we got into World War II was because we were going to go save everyone who was in a, in a concentration camp. No, initially, we just wanted revenge on Japan for blowing up Pearl Harbor. So we didn't go into the idea of the Civil War on purely moral, you know, sort of sort of reasons as far as uh, slavery. So point I, point I bring, reason I bring all that up is because, you know, <laughs> I, I always go back to this. And I probably even said it on this show, but one of my favorite, 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 most succinct quotes, you remember well, Jesus, probably almost 20 years ago now when Dave Chappelle had his very successful Chappelle show. One of my favorite lines there is he had old Richard Pryor comedy writer, uh, Paul Mooney, who I believe has now since uh, passed RIP, but he used to do these funny little bits. And one of his best lines was, Paul just looked right in the camera and he just simply said this, everyone wants to be a black man. No one wants to be a black man meaning simply that we like to pay lip service and we like to culturally appropriate and we want to blah, blah, blah. Uh, we like all the trappings of all this sort of uh, uh, abilities and mythos and romanticism and exoticism and all this that we put onto African-American culture, but it's always for our benefit, right? We don't actually want to live that experience. We don't want to actually be subjugated. We don't actually want to walk a mile in their shoes and all that stuff. So anyway, so that, that's where a lot of that kind of comes from, that gobbledygook of, of, of the Civil War. But then when you get into the idea of memory and such, you're right. You know, there's there's films that, that are imbued with the sort of uh, lost cause. And then if you then tie it into KKK stuff, we can even include Birth of a Nation, one of the most famous uh, first big epic films. But the other, uh, the other group that is working culturally at that time since the Civil War is called the UDC, or the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And they are the ones who raise money for those statues. They're the ones who help to uh, get textbooks published or books that you would have in church meetings that would teach these sort of alternative histories that are very much imbued with lost cause uh, 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 thoughts. So... 
All right, so it's all happening there, right? We, uh, uh, we're dealing with all of that. But what I teased before, and I think this is maybe, and I forget if you're going to go into this or not, but I believe the linchpin that we're sort of looking for here, the connector, is we have this ideology of lost cause. We now have this new format of television. Why suddenly in the late 50s, early 60s, would we suddenly seem to have so many scripts pop up that seem to validate rather this lost cosmic ideology? And that is what's going on in the fifties. Horror of horrors. Folks who have been in the country for years, folks who were taken from their homes, who were then forced to be uh, commodities and sold for their labor and not persons and blah, blah, blah. They are tired of what they supposedly won their freedom of in the civil war but are actually, it's still the same thing, just now called Jim Crow and Jim Crow laws. They want rights. They want equality, right? They want to be treated as human beings. So when I mentioned earlier the idea of Southern strategy, what that refers to, and that, that gets popularized in the early 70s with Nixon's, uh, just between Nixon's end of his first term, beginning of his second term. But we have a spectrum here of people who otherwise wouldn't hate, but they're born into a culture of hate. So it's just normalized and they go along with it to folks who just, you know, they're, they're baked in with the hate, right? They just, they love to hate, right? That kind of thing. So the people that they've demonized, the people that they've never saw as human beings are now possibly going to be treated as human beings. And when you're stuck in a racist ideology, the only thing you have is the racism. Since the Civil War, the Democratic Party often could rely on the Southern states to vote their way, okay? And I, I'll, I'll be, I wish Andrew was here because he always remembers these details better than I. I'm a little foggy on, on some of the minutia of the political party dynamics. But the point being was that Republicans in the 50s started to realize, and this goes 50s, 60s into the 70s, and then again, it gets a name, Southern Strategy. They realize that they can actually start flipping voters from the traditional Southern Democrat to Republicans if they lead with the race issue. And so that's what they do. And so now suddenly the Democrats can't rely on the South for that block of voters because they're not voting for their economic interests. They're not uh, voting for any, in any sort of sane, rational way. They're just voting on, I want to feel superior to these other people who've always been considered lesser in products and they're literally our servants. They're literally our unpaid workers. They're literally, you know, all that stuff. So my point here is what I think you are sort of responding to is that we start to see that bristling at, uh-oh, what if they get equal rights? Well, that's not good. And so that sort of lost cause mythos starts to bleed into the then what? TV was what, like 47, 48, 49. So 60, what is 61, 68? You know, it's not that it hasn't been around just 15, 20 years. You're starting to see that you're, you're seeing that fight back and you know you can get into all this stuff but i'll say one last thing so nixon in 68 famously ran on a law and law and order platform and that is a thinly disguised uh, uh phrase for i don't like seeing all the police action on tv screens of them beating black people as they're attempting to 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 march for better things so everything's going to get crazy. We need to get back to sort of quote unquote law and order, meaning white, white, uh, whites in power, whites in control. I wouldn't be surprised if in further research, there was some corporate memo from NBC or CBS or whoever who were like, you know, the affiliates down in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi or Alabama, boy, they really like some of those rawhide episodes. Like they're really like, yeah, you know, good, you know, good, good stuff. So. I think you bring up some really good points. The Jim Crow laws, civil rights brewing in the 1960s and the marches. However, you know, that I don't think it, it was just that one point in time where we see this come up, but rather I see this as being more of a lineage of continuation because when you think about Gone with the Wind, uh, many of the works by Shelby Foote, Jubal Early, Walt Disney, uh, they all carry these these themes of the myth of the lost cause in them uh, in certain works. And one of the things I found in my research that was really interesting 
is the uh, accusation that the National Park Service forwards these causes because they celebrate and they preserve Confederate locations and Confederate personnel on their park tours. And so you're seeing this not only in pop culture, but, you know, even by the government, you know, how they preserve historical moments in time. Uh, you know, and we're one. I'm wondering. This, this is coming at you from all angles. It's not just here's a sitcom that did this, and so that you know, I, I think it all plays together. But I don't think it's as simple as you know one one moment. Well, no, and and let's try to nuance this because I think we're both saying decent stuff here. You're right to recognize that it's just a new iteration of what had been going on. I'm 100% with you on that. The only thing that I'm trying to point out is it actually got quote unquote real and close in the fifties because we were always able to sort of deny, 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 deny. And when we got to the point of, uh, protests when, and, and honestly, you could almost, you could almost argue that the intimacy of television in the home showing the the protests showing the brutality etc uh that that was sort of unique and, and different but all i'm trying to say is that we got so close to actual political change that i think it frightened a lot of folks who are racist and so it became became sort of a, a need to like let's really push this stuff um that's 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 my point. So yes, it's been going on. It's a new thing, but that new thing was like, oh my God, it's like uh, real quick, early seventies when we almost got an equal rights amendment for women. And, and when it really got real, then all the, and these days, right. With trans rights, abortion rights, et cetera, whenever it gets truly real, then all the backlash comes out and they do whatever they can to sort of quash it uh, and normalize their side, et cetera. So one of the details of the slavery argument within the lost cause was the depiction of slaves as being faithful and happy and content and grateful. Do you think any of that can be applied to the 1950s and 60s television where the shows don't address this, um, you know, in scripts or in episodes, but rather we see a Rochester happily serving a Jack Benny uh, even as, you know, Jack Benny will give Rochester agency in these sitcoms, Rochester is still working for Jack Benny. Uh, do you think any of that pushes into those types of shows where minorities are the servants um, for the households, uh, for shows that were written by white people, starring white people, but now we're seeing, uh, you know, African-Americans getting starring roles, but they're in the role of the servant does the lost cause play through that or is that pushing the boundary too far? I, th I think you're, I think it goes a little bit more to your point, which is this is just another iteration of what, it, what had already been, been there before in film. We start to see little bits and pieces with like the rise of Sidney Poitier's career, that sort of thing. But it's I, what I, I would answer, Steve, it's the invisibility of so much, right? So, yeah, it's Rochester, and it's bad enough that he's a, a manservant, but a lot of the characters or the few African-American characters or people of color on screen, they're never allowed to be fully formed people, right? You don't see uh, an actual well-rounded character who's a protagonist or an antagonist who has parts of them that are noble, parts of them that are petty, uh, one minute they are uh, in, a, in a loving embrace or, embrace or a sexual embrace, and another minute they're doting father, whatever it is, right? There's there's no well-roundedness. And even, you know, we like, and I, Lord knows I love Star, Star Trek, but, you know, and, and Uhura got some, some moments in that show, but a lot of times she was a glorified, you know, receptionist, you know, space receptionist in, in some ways. So it's it's not so much that I can point to, like, okay, so this guy played this role, blah, blah, blah. It's the fact that it was the same kind of servant roles. Like what was the, was Bonanza, right? Didn't they have the Asian Asian cook? Sure. Or I forget his name, right? Yep. Bachelor, that, bachelor father had that too. I mean, a lot of the servants tend to be minorities. But it's also just, it's just the absence, right? And that's why, you know, now we understand in his personal life what a monster he is. But the fact that Bill Cosby, stand-up nightclub comedian, 
got to play a cool spy who was equal to Robert Culp in I Spy. It was like, oh my God, wow, you know? And, and, and that's why these days, and, and, and uh, uh, you mentioned national parks earlier, and I know you're talking about monuments and statuary, but, and this is, I have not researched this. This is just my knee, knee-jerk reaction. But I think for the first time in my entire life, and maybe you go back to the 70s, maybe you can prove me wrong. But I think the first time in my life in the last year, I've seen a commercial for the national parks that actually start a black family. So like that idea of representation, that idea of absence, that idea of invisibility, I think is, is almost much more important than or as important as the fact that, oh, there we are. But yep, I'm a servant again, or I'm the comic relief. And you know, what do we we talk about? I always get them wrong, right? I uh Rooney. Uh I always got Mickey, Mickey Rooney, right? Not Andy Rooney. We made that joke <laughs> one time. Um Mickey Rooney, right, in Breakfast at Tiffany's does this really tasteless sort of oriental, and I'm using that word deliberately, oriental caricature uh for comedy. So it's it, it it's either bad, demeaning, or absent. I don't want this to come across as saying this is what more R. Lewis was doing. Oh, you don't. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it could just be how many writers were raised. This is what they grew up understanding. It's what they knew. And so they wrote because some of the other series that I just want to bring in 1959, 1961 on ABC, The Rebel. It's actually by Goodson Todman, the game show people. They the production company put this on. <laughs> And Nick Adams stars as Johnny Yuma, a former Confederate soldier. And I, you can watch these episodes on YouTube. And I watched a few. He roams the Midwest. He keeps a journal. He fights injustice wherever he goes. He's very well-written, well-read. Uh, and he's the protagonist. But he's a former Confederate soldier. And it's sort of, well, were you ignorant to what you were fighting for? Do you understand the cause you were fighting for? Why did you go to war? to fight for a cause? Why, you didn't know what a cause was. It was just another kind of running away. But why don't you keep on running? All you can do around here is make trouble for the rest of the town. You don't care about the rest of the town. I came here to help you, Johnny. Just thinking about yourself and your bootlicking husband. There's also The Americans, 1961 NBC. It's two brothers fighting on the opposite sides of the Civil War. The series only lasted 17 episodes in 61. There's also Wanted Dead or Alive with Steve McQueen, 1958-1961 CBS. And this idea that McQueen plays Josh Randall, a former Confederate soldier, now turned bounty hunter. And he's known for his soft heart, his generous soul, and his fights for freedom. So... In an age when many characters are one-sided, it's it's the full hero. You don't really have the term anti-hero yet in television. I find it very interesting that unintentionally they did create these very complex characters. But I wonder at the time whether or not viewers were aware of this. Or if viewers in 1961 are saying, geez, John, Johnny Yuma, he fought for the Confederacy. Is he pro-slavery? Am I rooting for this character? Because it's not what you're seeing on the screen. You're you're seeing him do good in that moment in time. But what does he stand for? And I I don't know. Um, I tend to overanalyze things. So maybe I'm I'm thinking too much into this. But uh, I think when you watch, it's something that you definitely wonder, what were the intentions of the writers here? What were they trying to do? Yeah, I mean, that's going to take more research on it. It would take more research on our part. But like, as far as audiences... You don't know. You can't lump them in as this sort of monolith, right? So some young kid who might be sort of uh, attracted to the gunplay or the horses or, or the action of it, yeah, they probably don't or can't think of it at a certain level. But the same can be said for the tired sort of worker who comes home at night. There's only so many choices for entertainment on TV at that point and says, ah, this is good enough. Uh, and then there could be someone who does understand the context, and they're turned off by it. You know, they would say, oh, this is this could be good, this idea, but it's it sort of dumbed down. And as far as the, you know, this has been played out, I believe it's Lonesome Dove or one of them, right? The idea, they love that idea of uh, two brothers, one on each side, Hatfield and McCoy's almost sort of fighting one another. Um, so that's always always good for, for the drama. But yeah, I, I don't think we can guess at that. But it's also, that's that's a slippery slope. 
we have to be careful not to just kind of throw our hands up and go, well, that was the culture they were born into, so it's okay, and we let everyone off the hook. But at the same time, if you say, you know, this particular person in their identity, in their personality, in their character, whatever, is an absolute unapologetic racist who just hates to hate, you know, without actually doing the research on, on the particular view of the particular person, it's very hard because some people were, some people like to hate these days. Absolutely. Others, you know, twisted ideology, whatever. And then others, yeah, they're just kind of, they don't feel powerful. They don't feel whatever. They kind of go along with it because it's easier, right? Like think about when we were kids and you weren't who you were yet and you were around a group of friends, uh, unless you wanted to get the shit beat out of you, excuse my French, sometimes you just kind of nodded and went along with things, right? Because or you were going to be mercilessly teased for the next three weeks, you know? So some people, they don't actually hate, but they just go along with it because their uncle or their parents or whoever always used the N-word. My point is, is that I think we're doing a, I like this conversation of laying out the parameters of it, but yeah, I can't sit here and say, well, this audience member took it this way or they deliberately produce it that way because especially with TV production, you know how many people you have to serve and satisfy to get anything on the air that who the hell knows what the original intention was and whether it actually came through on the screen or if it was a mishmash compromise sort of thing, you know? Sure. What, what do you think of the idea though of the Confederacy standing for pro-slavery? Yes. Yes. They, 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 they love, they, they love the idea of superiority uh, they like the economic benefits that awarded them by having people who weren't people be bought and sold to to uh, provide certain basic elements of their their economy. To understand the Confederacy is to understand racism and normalizing racism. The most extreme version of it, uh, articulation of it, being KKK and parties where we lynched human beings and all that kind of crap and, and killing with impunity. But if you're asking like that particular writer and why he liked the Civil War as a subject and why he used that to fuel some of his ideas when he wrote TV teleplays, you know, without researching the guy as much as we can of his life and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I can't tell you. No, I, well, I, yeah, I know that's difficult to do. I think I'm looking at it more from the viewer perspective. Now, The Rebel is not widely seen in syndication. But the, the entire story follows, right, an ex-Confederate soldier. I guess when I present this problem, I'm looking for a solution. And my solution is to denounce the series, to say, no, I cannot watch The Rebel because I can't root for a character who stands for pro-slavery. I find it wrong. No matter, it's, it's, there's no redeeming quality in this for me. I can't watch it. And you start wondering, well, am I being too closed-minded? Is Am I not reading this correctly? Am I overanalyzing it? Because in many of these episodes, Jonathan, slavery's never brought up, which, again, I think is, is also a problem. If you're going to introduce the Confederacy to a Dennis the Menace episode, yeah, Henry Mitchell can denounce his grand, great-grandfather as a gambler and a cheater, but you're, if you're not bringing slavery into the conversation, then you're not accurately looking at it through the lens it is intended to be looked through. So by almost ignoring slavery, even for Rod Serling and his anti-war perspective, you know, he's looking at it as just here's a Union soldier and a Confederate soldier. They're two human beings and they're going to communicate. If you strip slavery out of the equation, you're doing a disservice for what it stands for, because at that point, People can't see what isn't being discussed. They may not be aware, and suddenly they're like, "Yeah, you know, uh, the Confederacy wasn't that bad." Look at, look at Johnny Yuma. He's well read. He he keeps a journal. He fights injustice. I like this character. But to me, I can't look past the the fact that slavery is 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 just strictly tied to the Confederacy. Well, and, and I'll, I have three comments with that. So, personally, you know, I agree with you in the in the in the general sense. But then the second point is, as a scholar, you know, my full answer to you, if you were like, if this was super important to you, whatever, is I would do as much homework as you possibly could about this series, why it was made, what they felt about it, blah, 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 then make your sort of final decision. And then third, of course, is the joke. And that is, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I think you're probably one of the 13 people currently thinking about or even knows about this show. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're, it's okay. You know, you're, you're, you're well, well, hold on. Let me stop you right there because what you bring up is what I've considered. 
do the research, know the writers, know the producers. I 100% agree with you. But does that matter in the message that was encoded? You want to know what people felt about it in like 1962 or something. Well, let's say you have the Jonathan Bullinger Television Network and you're looking to pick up some syndicated shows for your, uh, you know, for your daytime TV watching. the, The Rebel is being offered to you at a really reasonable price. Does the fact that he's a ex-Confederate soldier tell you, no, I'm not buying this for my for my programming or are because or are you saying, well, I, I want to know who made it. I want to know at the end of the day, I'm just curious, is it just what was encoded or, you know, is it is it who made it? Because I'm leaning more towards the former than the latter on that decision. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, in that scenario, if I'm a pure business person. Of course I use it because it's cheap content and I think my old demographic will tune into it for nostalgic purposes. If I have leverage and I have some education or some morality or whatever, and eh, maybe I do, maybe I don't, or I do what you know is, is controversial, which is maybe I only air certain episodes, right? And then that gets us into a different argument, something that uh, we've talked about, I think, in the past, which is do you run anything but just put a disclaimer in front, you know, almost like a plaque on a, on a monument going, just realize that about 14 of these episodes are really problematically racist, but for whatever reason, we think it's still, in, you know, cause this is the controversial part. Like, is it really, you know, some people it's like, it is important to show the level and absurdity of the racism. So we're going to show it in its full. And then of course people are going, why do we just keep circulating these offensive images? Like you, you know, we don't need to, and that's a, that's a whole different well, know, I mean, whole different topic. Look at Norman Lear, right? He learned that All in the Family was viewed as sympathetic to Archie Bunker by some viewers, right? The message he encoded wasn't decoded the same way by everyone, uh, where he wanted Archie to be the butt of many jokes. There were people who stood up and said, Archie's right. I like All in the Family. I want to watch this. And you're like, oh, okay, well, you're not going to read the episode the way it was intended. Uh, and I certainly think that, you know, that's part of it, too, which which gets us even further into a future episode I'd like to uh, talk about. And that is like streaming services who put disclaimers, streaming services who censor content, streaming services who let the content ride without a disclaimer. I think that's a whole topic worth exploring, too, of how we then show historical artifacts in today's world and, and the messages and the times in which they were encoded very different from how the audience is decoding it now. I'll give your, I'll ask you your own question. So if you're, you're running a small content channel or whatever, and the rebel is provided to you like dirt cheap, you know, you have a very old demographic of boomers who still tune into your channel and you know, they'll dig this. Are you, what, what would you do? I'm not buying it now. Are you at all? interested in what the effect was in 61 62 like are you are you are you getting into like a the genie's already out of the bottle kind of argument or am i just totally misunderstanding i'm interested in how it was received in 61 unfortunately other than reading reviews of the show you're not really ever going to be able to answer that question um because those are you know you're looking at one critic's opinion that wrote for variety back then I'm I'm curious. The the show stayed on CBS for for two seasons, and you know, Wanted Dead or Alive was uh, two or three seasons on CBS as well. Rawhide eight seasons uh, that lasted a long time. The Confederacy is kind of the backdrop for some of that. Uh, it, all those shows take place, you know, after the war is over. I, I guess what I'm pushing at a bit is that while as much as I love old TV. I think if you're interested in the issue and the idea, the ideology, I think you can find plenty of uh, examples happening now and you could get, and especially within, so not that social media is totally accurate and it can be mob mentality and blah, 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 but you may be able to get a bit more of a sense of sort of what people are reacting to and how they're thinking about it and all that. Whereas now, what is it, 60 years later, you know, some of that information has just lost the time. It may, it, it may never be able to be captured. Yeah, I I think the other thing, too, that I don't want to dismiss is the network executive and the power that the executives had in selecting programming, uh, as well as what the sponsors had. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, sponsors, they wielded a lot of power about what could be said in shows and what was mentionable. 
And I think when you're looking at creating conflict and engaging television, I could certainly in my mind see the network executive saying, oh, you know, this show about this Union soldier after the war, that's kind of boring. Give me the Confederate soldier, the underdog. I want to see that. I want to see the fight to survive and, and what they do after they've been decimated. Like that makes for good drama. And so I could certainly see a, a writer kind of being turned around and saying, well, do it from the Confederacy perspective and that'll make for better television. And neither realize that they're now pushing the lost cause myth, but rather let's get ratings and, you know, let's not piss off the advertisers. But I am interested in what the sponsors thought, you know, of, I'm going to sponsor the rebel. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be putting money up against this. If that was problematic, uh, but I imagine back then, you know, it, again, maybe not socially as socially aware, they may have just said it's a western. It works. Let's put money behind it, and maybe not even be aware of really, you know, what the character was standing for. Yeah, I mean, and, and oh, and, and by the way, slavery is not mentioned in any of these shows. Uh, right. So again, it's you know, you you would have to make that association to make it problematic, like I'm doing here. Yeah, I mean. I mean, you're getting into, you know, the, uh, you know this, but like, yeah, network executives make terrible decisions all the time. And again, it would, it would take a real deep dive of that show. And, and I'm sure there's, there's probably some hardcore uh, civil war buff who, who includes media in their writing or vice versa, you know, early 50s, 60s, Western US TV writer who has a nice subsection on Westerns. They may have some of that for us. We just, you know, we got to revisit it. And I'm sure if we continued this into the 70s and the 80s, you would continue to see maybe not as many, but you would still see those threads. And of course, Roots comes out in 1977. Yeah. And I'll just add that, you know, if you want to look at the, you know, if you're sort of sitting there scratching your head, like, how is this, you know, what's the old Princess Bride, you know, inconceivable, you know, that, that kind of thing. Like there are just like there's people who collect Confederates uh, paraphernalia. There are people who unfortunately are real jazzed at collecting Nazi memorabilia and Nazi souvenirs and all that. And you sit there going, why in the bleepy bleep would you ever want to possess any of that? I mean, it's truly just a symbol of hatred and, and atrocity and all that. But unfortunately there are people who they, they follow symbols of again, power and then it becomes sort of romanticized when it is framed as the lost cause, right? And we see that a lot with the new sort of authoritarianism today of young men sort of, oh, you know, they're not, I'm not being listened to and I'm on the end. I'm a, sorry, I'm on the edge, the fringe. And, oh, you know, if it, we're right. And I have the, you know, I did the research and all that stuff and just being sort of swept up in this sort of romanticism of fighting for something that, you know, other people have snuffed out. It's unfortunately a very powerful, uh, powerful message. And uh, sometimes it shows up on children's television, apparently, <laughs> in the 1960s. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you for indulging me today on this topic. I hope you found it interesting, as I hope the listeners did, maybe giving you something to think about if you come across one of these series or television episodes from the 1950s and 60s. For Jonathan Bollinger, I'm Steve Voorhees. You can find us online at tvhistorypod.com, and we're also on Patreon. You've been listening to Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast.